an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, in Washington Territory in the 1860s, the fee to be a Chinese person was $24 a year in most counties, except in Whatcom, where the cost was $40. So there was cultural, ethnic, as well as economic factors that people had against the Chinese. And then, from the archives, remembering the eruption of Mount St. Helens with rare vintage audio. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. His quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the essential piece of logging equipment developed along the shores of and named for an iconic northwest body of water. What would that be, Felix? Well, you know, we've talked here before about the actual guy who named the Buick Rainier SUV. And I've tried and failed to track down origin stories for the Toyota Tacoma. I've been pestering the Costco people lately about the real story behind Kirkland's signature. I just love the idea of national products named for northwest places. Yes. Today, this is something a little different. It's a piece of a logging equipment called a Puget Sound falling axe. Falling as in, you know, falling or felling a tree. It's designed specifically here, probably organically, in western Washington in the pre-mechanized days, as early as the 1860s. And 100 years ago, as recently as the 1950s maybe, several manufacturers, mostly in the east, were making and selling them. There are old catalogs that show Puget Sound falling axes on their pages, and my Twitter feed has a few pictures of those. Now, I'll describe what it looks like, then I'll explain the theory about what it was designed for. The head is tempered steel, weighs between 3 and 5 pounds. It's a double-bit axe, which means it has a blade on either end. And the blade is long. It's at least 12 inches, maybe 14 inches from end to end. Oh. Kind of on the skinnier side, and if you want to look at it in profile from top to bottom. Now, the handle's a little different, too. Most regular axe handles have 36 inches, 36-inch long handles, as you know, Dave. Yes. Um, the Puget Sound Falling Axe, the handle's at least 42 inches, maybe 48 inches. So it's Jeez, really long. how big were these people? I know. <laughs> So why would an axe like this be developed, you know, probably in a blacksmith shop of a lumber camp 150 years ago? First of all, the timber here in the Northwest is huge compared to other parts of the country. That's why a longer handle was more useful. Now, second, the big cedar trees in the Northwest often grew from stumps and nursery trees. So to cut down a big tree by hand, loggers needed to be able to get up above a very complex and sometimes rotted stump. That meant cutting holes into the trunk to place springboards. Those are the scaffolding-like temporary structures for men to stand on and then use a cross-cut saw. Now, we've all seen those springboard holes, right? Yeah. So a, a local axe expert I talked to, a guy named Tom Allen, he theorizes that the long, narrow Puget Sound falling axe head was especially useful for cutting those narrow holes for springboards without breaking your axe handle. Because if you look at like these uh, springboard, they're very deep, they're very narrow, and a regular axe just couldn't do that. And you know, if you go on any hike anywhere around here, if you look closely, you'll see these springboards on some of the old stumps. Now... One last thing. There's no patent for this. It's not like a single logger or blacksmith was ever credited with the design. It's not even a brand name. It's a pattern that was manufactured by multiple companies. And there were other axes, you know, named for other parts of the country, like a Jersey, a Michigan, a Long Island, that kind of thing. And they're known nowadays mostly by collectors and enthusiasts. But retired Forest Service axe expert Bernie Weisgerber told me they're still actually used by crews in wilderness areas where power tools are forbidden. Now, um, 
You can find them on eBay, and any listener, of course, is welcome to give me theirs. I'd love to have one for a paperweight. <laughs> I think it'd be, it'd be fantastic and probably somewhat somewhat dangerous piece of desk hardware. That could be a boat anchor. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize there were actual axe experts, but uh, if there are, I, I'm not surprised you found them. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd never heard of this before. I stumbled across it doing some other research, as I often do, and just was blown away by just this deep, deep well of information out there about the Puget Sound falling axe. All of Felix's features are at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend, Felix. You too, Dave. Thanks. Right from the start, Spokane's charm and lively spirit put us in a holiday mood, which was heightened when we reached the country club where the Washington State Open Golf Tournament was in progress. Violent expulsion of Chinese people from the West Coast cities in the 1880s, including Seattle and Tacoma, is a pretty dark chapter in Northwest history. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, has traced anti-Chinese discrimination back even further to a law passed by the Washington Territorial Legislature. Back in 1864, Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, in an old thesis published back in the 1920s, I stumbled across while doing some other research, a scholar mentioned a law that created the Chinese police tax. So one of the reasons that Spokane County ceased to exist for several years back in the 1860s. It's a little complicated, but it might have been a gambit to collect more of this tax by trying to administratively fold Spokane into Stevens County. There were hundreds of Chinese working in the mining industry there. Anyway, it was that county research that led to this, me sort of learning about this thing for the first time. Now, stepping back a bit, the history of Chinese people in the western United States is not something we hear a lot about. You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, a federal law, ended Chinese immigration to this country for about 60 years, and those violent expulsions in the 1880s tended to reduce the presence of that population. For some perspective, I spoke with a Seattle man named Doug Chin, along with his twin brother, Art. He's authored a number of books about Chinese history in Washington. I was born in Seattle a long time ago, 1942. Went to school here uh, in Seattle and uh, never read anything about Chinese. I only learned about anti-Chinese stuff when my brother started doing research on it when he was a student at the University of Washington. I read one of his term papers. That's how I found out about the Chinese experience in Washington. Yeah, so it was a little remote. And what Doug Chin found out is that the first Chinese people were in Washington Territory by the 1850s. And while those anti-Chinese riots took place decades later, there was resentment and prejudice right away. And he and his brother even mentioned the Chinese police tax on the first page of their first book. They see the Chinese as unfair labor competition, tools of the capitalists, as well as other cultural factors. You know, they couldn't assimilate, you know, and uh, their anti-religion, they were filthy, their intelligence was below the whites and so forth. So there was cultural, ethnic, as well as economic factors uh, that people had against the Chinese. Yeah, and Chinese people had come to California before they came to Washington Territory, and this is in the 1840s. And so it was California that passed a law in April 1862 with this title, an act to protect free white labor against competition with Chinese coolie labor and to discourage the immigration of the Chinese into the state of California. Very clear, what you see is what you get. No, yeah. no hiding the intent there in the title. Now, the California law required all Chinese men and women to pay $7.50 a quarter as what they call the Chinese police tax. 
That's $30 annually or the equivalent of about $500 today. I mean, that's real money. In that same year, 1862, Oregon imposed a $5 annual tax on blacks, Chinese, mulattoes, and Hawaiians. So then in 1864, Washington's territorial legislature passed a law with almost exactly the same title as California's. The whole law is almost a verbatim copy, though there are some differences. Now, for instance, in Washington Territory, the tax was $6 a quarter. It's a little less in California. I did find evidence of it being enforced in King County in 1866 with those who didn't pay being forced to help build a road. Now, in each county, the tax was collected by the sheriff, and the individual officer got to keep 25% of whatever he collected. What? Which, <laughs> you know, it's an inducement or incentive, right? But it I seems guess right. So. It, it seems ripe for corruption, but there was paperwork involved. I don't know of any of those actual receipts surviving. I would love to track those down. Now, the remainder of, of the 75% was split halfway between each county and the territory. There were tough economic times during the Civil War here because government spending really dropped off, and this was sort of a gambit to raise money. Now, here's the real oddity. The law specifically gave Whatcom County a much higher rate of $10 per quarter. That's roughly $160 in 2021. Now, why would Whatcom get to charge more, almost double, than other counties? In 1864, Bellingham, as we know it, didn't yet exist in Whatcom County. Jeff Jewell at the Whatcom Museum says there were two main communities there. They had Whatcom and Seahome as kind of these rival two dusty towns that or rainy towns, depending on what time of the year you wanted to look at them. You know, each with, you know, maybe 750 to 1,000 inhabitants and serving almost strictly a San Francisco market. So everything was shipped out, coal and lumber. So there's a pretty strong economic connection between Whatcom County and San Francisco, maybe a cultural and political connection, too. Now, I got a lot of help with the story from the law library at Seattle University and a retired law librarian named Kelly Kunch. They shared with me evidence they found of British Columbia essentially mimicking what California was doing. You know, they would see what California did to discriminate against the Chinese and mimic it in British Columbia. So it's not a great leap to speculate that Washington Territory was doing the same and passing its own Chinese police tax, even down to copying the language. But that higher rate in Whatcom County is still something of a mystery. Um, at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Josh Ceretti is an associate professor of history. The higher tax was news to him, and he theorized that it's related to Whatcom's proximity to the border. There were a number of people who would come to the states from China at that time were transiting through southern B.C., and so they would come, you know, by often from Hong Kong to Vancouver. Um, and then from Vancouver, they might cross down by land because there were often lots of opportunities due to like periodic labor shortages down here in the extraction industry. Yeah, so there wasn't a federal uh, immigration policy. So maybe this was Whatcom County taking it. I don't know how they were able to get that put into the bill to be able to collect so much more tax. Now, oddly enough, California's Chinese police tax didn't last very long. It was struck down as discriminatory by the California Supreme Court you the think? same year it became a law. And in Washington Territory, it was repealed in 1869, and it warmed my heart to read the name of the, the law that repealed it. It was an act to repeal all police tax laws discriminating against Chinese, Mongolians, and Kanakas, or, or Hawaiians. So in 1869, lawmakers here were calling it what it was, discriminating. That's, there's something encouraging about that. That still, you know, it's part of the history. And Doug Chin says that knowing this kind of history is where belonging comes from. I think it's important to know the legacy of the Chinese American experience in Washington State because uh, if, if you're Chinese, you want to feel that you contributed or you belong here.
in in Washington. That your race, the Chinese, uh, played an important role in developing Washington State. Otherwise, you don't feel part of it. You, you know, you're, mar- you're at best marginalized. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's what a story. There's, yeah, there's so much more. To, I'd love to figure out the actual people involved in making that law happen and making it go away. And uh, meanwhile, the Chinese Memorial Project will be dedicating a monument next year down on Alaska Way between Washington and, and South Maine um, to those 1885-1886 expulsions. So it's you got to keep this history transparent to keep learning from it. That's that's what I believe. Historian Felix Bonneau, all of his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, a Yakima woman's audio diary recorded the day Mount St. Helens erupted in May 1980. Forty years ago today. Let's go to Felix Bennell, a resident historian with highlights from a never-before-heard audio diary recorded on this day in Yakima 40 years ago. And some harrowing memories shared over the weekend by a Cairo listener who barely escaped from the blast. Felix. Yeah, it's probably the most iconic regional event in living memory, and there's tons of material online to go back, see the video, hear some of the old news coverage. I love Harry Truman, of course. Now, we don't want to make light of the fact that 57 people died, but we do commemorate the history, and many of us still have jars of ash out in the garage. So today, for the 40th anniversary, I have some very special audio to play for the first time anywhere. What we're going to hear are some highlights from what I'd call an audio diary. These were recorded at a house on a ranch up on a hill with an amazing view overlooking Yakima, May 18, 1980, by a woman named Diane Murphy. She's originally from Iowa. She had a friend back there named Cindy. They would send audio cassettes back and forth to stay in touch. This is when long distance was still pretty expensive. So I met Diane in Yakima in March at the Yakima Valley Museum. I was down there giving one of my history talks for Humanities in Washington. Actually, that was the last talk I gave before the pandemic shut all that stuff down. Now, Diane mentioned she had a tape. Then she was kind enough to actually mail it to me. Now, Yakima was in the direct path of the massive cloud of ash released when St. Helens erupted at 8.32 that morning in 1980. At Diane Murphy's house, it was dark as night by midday. The bulletins coming over are do not panic. Um, We were to close all the houses, bring in as many pets as you could, um, close all of the curtains, plug up any, any drafts. Cindy, I had been teaching Sunday school, and when I came out at 10 o'clock, there was a terrific black cloud approaching from the west, like I used to see in the Midwest, and yet I have never seen since I've lived in Yakima, but dead calm. And can you believe I debated whether to try to make it home? Um, And I walked to my car, and as soon as I saw the car, I said to Megan, "The, the volcano has erupted because there was ash all over my car. I said, get in, don't breathe it, shut the windows, and as I started off, it came sheeting down. The black cloud came over. It became as black as night. It was pouring down so hard you couldn't see the roads or the stop signs. You could not see. There was just zero visibility. 
And it's cool. She has the radio on in the background there, station KIT in Yakima, which stayed on throughout the whole experience. Now, that's Diane Murphy. She's recording a message to her friend Cindy, May 18th, 1980. She also mentioned her daughter Megan there. And on that ranch overlooking Yakima, Diane and her two kids and her husband, Mike Murphy, also had a small herd of cattle. It momentarily cleared slightly. I could see the cattle hanging on the fence, and then they, uh, and then I cannot, now I cannot see them again. It is so dense. It's, I can see on my ledge out the window here that there is about an inch of this thick black ash, and it is raining down at the moment as if it was a pouring down rainy day, and it's as black as if it was midnight. And I don't know of any other recordings like this where a civilian is essentially functioning as an impromptu radio reporter and describing the eruption in real time. Um, they have shut off the main water. We are in, I, I guess I never been so afraid in my life I Mike and I just sat and stared at one another the first thing we shut the house shut the windows we took every container we could find and have filled it with water we um, immediately you can taste the smell the sulfur in the air and you can taste it um, by the time this tape gets to you if it ever gets to you, if I ever get out of this, I was afraid that we were going to be in this night for the next um, six months. Yeah, and the sky did lighten up later that evening, and I spoke with Diane yesterday. She was sitting outside at the ranch where she still lives. She's recovering from a broken hip, but she's just thrilled we're sharing her tape with everybody today. Now, on Friday, we also put out the call for memories from Cairo radio listeners. I wasn't able to call everyone back, but I did connect with a man in his late 60s named John Winkler. Now, in 1980, he and his wife and young son were recent arrivals from California in the northwest. They somewhat mistakenly ended up camping very near the mountain, uh, close to a place called Cispus Learning Center. This is not too far from Randall on that fateful night of Saturday, May 17th. Now, early the next morning, probably not too long after 8 o'clock, John Winkler left his wife and son at their campsite, drove his 1970 Camaro about 15 minutes to the store down in Randall to get some more salmon eggs and other supplies. So anyway, I go in there and I get a bunch of stuff and I go out the door and I look up and I look to my left, uh, my right, as far as I can see, just a river of everything going straight up in the air. It's like Niagara Falls, but going in the opposite direction and it's all dirt and just earth. It's going straight up in the air. It's like endless sitting there with my mouth open. Man. It's like I never seen anything like that before. And then, oh, lightning shooting up out of the ground. God, I've never seen lightning come up out of the ground before. I mean, you know, because of all the debris hitting each other, I guess. You know, and, uh, it's just like a spectacular light show. Now, John Winkler's story of survival is really intense. He headed back toward the campsite against the traffic coming down the canyon. He somehow found his wife and son. In the poor visibility from the falling ash, he accidentally put that Camaro in the ditch, so they had to hitch a ride with a woman who was panicking and hysterical, uh, driving solo in a car. I told my wife, I said, uh, you get in the front seat, and I'll get in the back seat. And then uh, whenever uh, the windshield, like, because it's like a blizzard of volcanic ash, and that's how I ran my car off the road. It, it's just like snow, you know. It gets down on your windshield, and then your windshield wiper packs it down. And then pretty soon your windshield wiper is not even hardly moving at all, you know, because you got all this packed down volcanic ash in there. So I told the lady, I said, when it gets that way, stop. I'll get out of the car and I'll stay off the windshield. So we would normally take about maybe, you know, 15 minutes at the most. It took us four hours walking speed almost, driving an almost walking speed. Because you can't see nothing at all, nothing. 
Yeah, and they were one of the last cars coming down that road. Somehow they made it to safety. John Winkler asked that woman, whose name he says he may not have even asked in the first place. He couldn't remember it. He asked to take them to a bus stop, but she insisted on driving them all the way home to Federal Way. And he went to work the next day at the swing shift of Boeing and says nobody really believed his story. But one of his coworkers with a four-wheel drive pickup truck uh, drove him back down to South Randall to get the Camaro out of the ditch and actually go back and get his tent and other camping stuff from their campsite. Um, he said that surviving the eruption, it didn't create any PTSD for him or anything. He says he never panicked, and the whole episode made him feel like he could handle anything. Really fascinating guy with a long career in aerospace engineering. And um, we're going to have some, some of the written memories people submitted up at My Northwest later today. But just a, a monumental event in history and amazing how many memories are still just so alive for people. Yeah, terrifying. I mean, you, 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 I mean some of those people thought they're just going to be buried there like Pompeii. And uh, I remember that after that, we had regular ash eruptions that uh, we, we didn't feel anything quite like that here in western Washington. But it, it fell. You could see it on the leaves of bushes and trees and on your lawn. Yeah, and those famous dome-building eruptions. Anyway, it was a great time to be an 11-year-old. I think I sat in my treehouse and listened to Cairo Radio all day. <laughs> which is pretty much what I do as a 51-year-old nowadays, too. So. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Felix Bunnell, you can find all his features at MyNorthwest.com. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.